Hello, I'm Sarah Maxwell with more news from the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology annual meeting being held here in Lyon. Welcome to the Audio Journal of Medicine from Audio Medica News. A study from Israel has shown it's possible to harvest eggs from girls as young as five who are about to undergo chemotherapy for cancer. The investigators extracted oocytes from follicles and then matured them in vitro before freezing them for use in the future. Although no eggs have yet been thawed, this promises to help preserve fertility for young patients who could otherwise be less sterile as a result of aggressive chemotherapy. I caught up with Ariel Ravel at the conference here in Lyon and he told me more about the methods they're using. We go in with a scope and uh, remove one of the two ovaries and uh, at the same time that we remove it we are searching for follicles growing outside on the ovarian cortex. We know that when we are planning to cryopreserve the ovarian cortex containing many many tiny uh, uh, primordial follicles, all the large ones will be destroyed by the freezing process. So the idea was that uh, we could try to aspirate those follicles, obtain eggs and look at them and perhaps using in vitro maturation techniques which are now commercially available manage to mature eggs on top of the ovarian cortex which is preserved. So we are offering actually two methods of fertilization in the future. And which patients have been included in this trial then? So these were only patients in which uh, we consider that they have a very aggressive disease, therefore requiring very aggressive chemotherapy. And um, there was a, a, a talk with the parents, usually more than once, both by the hematology team and by myself. At this point, uh, usually at the same time that another procedure was performed under general anesthesia, such as uh, bone marrow aspiration or insertion of a uh, central line for um, chemotherapy, under the same circumstances of anesthesia, we removed by laparoscopy one of the ovaries. And how successful has the procedure been so far? I would say that uh, this depends a lot uh, on many, many factors. Uh, we are not aware, I think, of all the factors at this, at this time. We do know that it is now possible to expect some oocytes, some eggs, to be removed from that ovarian tissue. This was a fact that we did not have at the start of the project because we were not sure that we could even obtain eggs from such young girls. And this came as a surprise to us. The fact that we can obtain them and even mature some of them is, is quite a surprise. So this is still at an early stage where these eggs haven't yet been thawed, even for us to know if that will happen successfully. But do you believe that this will present an actual viable option in the future for these girls? Uh, as you're well, well aware, any new uh, data needs to be confirmed by larger studies. And uh, future studies will tell if these eggs are any good. Perhaps uh, they are all damaged by the young age or by the process of cryopreservation. So we don't have many answers. We have actually much more questions now that we have those eggs than we had before. However, I do believe that for a very young girl to have an option to have a child in the future, even if it's rare and even if it's not in, in all of them, gives a lot of hope for physicians and certainly for the families. And with information that we do know today, what kind of success rates do you feel we could potentially be looking at here with the number of eggs you have successfully harvested? 
So surprisingly, we could find oocytes on the follicles in almost all patients. This came as a surprise. For sure, many of them did not successfully mature. I would say maybe one out of three. For young girls, maybe a little better for older girls. However, in vitro maturation techniques do improve. These are now commercially available, but many improvements are on the way. And I think that in the future, the in vitro maturation rate could increase. And uh, certainly until we have data from fertilization and pregnancy from those eggs, which probably in those young girls will take many years, we will not know for sure how successful we, we are doing. That was Ariel Ravel from Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem speaking to me at the fertility conference in Lyon. A study from Montreal has demonstrated a new way of preserving fertility in women who face the risk of sterility because of factors such as cancer treatment. Investigators told conference delegates here about the first baby born after collecting oocytes from unstimulated ovaries, maturing them in vitro, freezing them and then thawing them for fertilization. Four out of 20 resulted in pregnancy, and one of those has so far produced a live birth. Up until now, ovarian stimulation has been needed to make fertilization succeed, and some patients, such as those with hormone-dependent cancer, are not eligible for it. Hananel Holzer told me more about the method they've been using. From unstimulated ovaries, we collected immature oocytes. Uh, we do that for uh, regular fertility treatments for patients with polycystic ovaries at McGill, that's a uh, well-established treatment. But what we did now, and that was exceptional, we uh, collected the immature eggs or oocytes, uh, and then when after maturation, we froze. We vitrified the oocytes for a few months. A few months later, we thought the oocytes fertilized and transferred back the uterus. And uh, four of the patients, 20 patients were included in the study, uh, four of the patients uh, conceived, and one already gave birth to a healthy uh, daughter. So what's the initiative? It's the, actually the first baby born in the world after freezing of in vitro matured oocytes. Who is going to benefit from this? Who's going to benefit are patients with cancer who are going to have a gonadotoxic treatments who do not have enough time to stimulate the ovaries and some patients like breast cancer patients who cannot stimulate the ovaries. These are the patients uh, when we would like to uh, preserve the fertility potential, that's the method that we'll do and actually we've already done this for around, uh, uh, with IVM, around 50 cases. Are there any risks associated with this procedure? I think there are the risks, uh, like for uh, any IVF collection itself, the risk of uh, bleeding and infection, which is uh, uh, the published risks are around 0.3%. There is no risk of aggravating the disease or actually causing a recurrence of the disease. So within this study, you've looked at 20 patients here. So is your data strong enough for us to draw big conclusions here and say this is going to be the way forward? As I stated, these are primary results. There are initial results. We're going to have uh, larger scale studies. And of course, it's, it's the start. You know, uh, we have to start with a uh, small number. Even Steptoe and Edwards, when they first published IVF, it was uh, the first patient. Uh, so that's the start. It's not statistically significant, but we've proven that it can work. We've shown that it can work. We have by now four pregnancies. I don't know what will be the pregnancy rate in the future. Maybe it will be higher, maybe it will be lower. We don't know. So what we can offer now is what we know. 
What you've been able to demonstrate here at least then is that it is possible to collect immature oocytes from unstimulated ovaries here but what should clinicians in practice make of this? What should they take out of this? For collection of immature oocytes and in vitro maturation, it's well established with him that McGill is one of the leaders in the world about it. But I think for fertility preservation, clinicians should remember and know that this option exists. Patients who are undergoing chemotherapy can preserve their fertility potential by collecting immature eggs without any ovarian stimulation, so without risk of aggravating the disease, or if there is not enough time, then uh, this option is also available. Uh, to tell you uh, just an example, I have got a phone call on one of the Mondays from a patient in the Mississauga, which is quite a long way from Montreal. The patient was supposed to start chemotherapy on that Friday. I asked her to perform an ultrasound scan. She had an ultrasound scan done where she lives, and I saw that she's prior to ovulation. I asked her to take an HCG injection on the same day without ever seeing her and to fly to Montreal the next day. She came on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we collected, uh, I don't remember how many uh, eggs. Uh, in this case, she had a partner, so after the maturation of the eggs, we fertilized the eggs and frozen, uh, I think, eight embryos. And on uh, Friday, she started the chemotherapy. That was Hannah Nell Holzer from McGill University in Montreal speaking to me at the European Fertility Conference here in Lyon. Now over to Peter Goodwin. Human menotrophin, or HMG, is the better gonadotropin to use for ovarian stimulation than recombinant follicle-stimulating hormone, or RFSH. That's according to a study presented here at the Conference on Fertility by Masood Afnan from Birmingham, England. After his talk, he told me about the meta-analysis he and his colleagues have conducted, which gives a statistically significant superiority for HMG. For a decade or so, there's been a controversy between the two gonadotrophin preparations. Traditionally, we had the HMG, the human menopausal gonadotrophin, which is a purified extract uh, that was used. And then there's this new product called recombinant FSH, which was introduced. Um, and of course, both, well, not both, there's more than um, the two companies. There are a number of companies involved with this, but they're competing to say if one was better than the other. Now, you've been looking at the situation of using one or other of these agents, either in IVF or in ICSI. Can you tell me what you did? First of all, there was an existing meta-analysis in place by Van Wiele and colleagues in 2003 that showed that there was a trend in favour of using HMG over recombinant FSH, but that it was not statistically significant. Since that meta-analysis, a number of other studies have been published, which were randomised control studies comparing the two. So we wanted to update the meta-analysis. What this update has shown is that now there is a statistically significant benefit in favour of HMG over recombinant FSH. And the magnitude of the effect would be 18% as a relative risk in favour of HMG, or a 4% risk difference. So what I mean by that is that uh, in the pooled results, there's a 23% live birth rate with recombinant FSH and a 27% live birth rate with HMG. So that was the risk difference. If we translate that into what we can use clinically, there would be the numbers needed to treat. And if you assume a background live birth rate of 25% per cycle, the number needed to treat would be 23 to gain one additional live birth. Now, it sounds fairly convincing, and this is based 
on quite large numbers of patients, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So in total, there were 2,159 randomised women. Uh, so yes, it is. And that's the benefit of meta-analysis. It allows you to get over what's called the type 2 errors, which is the false negative findings, which is the problem with underpowered studies. What, in practical terms, does this mean for doctors treating infertile patients all over the world? Well, I can tell you what it means for me. What it means for me is that HMG seems to be, well, the HMG has been shown to give a higher chance for live birth for couples going through IVF and ICSI as compared to recombinant FSH. And I think the numbers involved are significant to make it worth my while clinically to prescribe HMG. Are there cost implications of this recommendation? Traditionally, HMG has always been cheaper than the newer technology of the recombinant FSH. So on both effectiveness and costs, it makes sense to prescribe HMG. So the bottom line for doctors? Bottom, the best available evidence says prescribe HMG as opposed to recombinant FSH for women undergoing ovarian stimulation in the long down regulation protocol before IVF and DICSI. Masood Afnan from the Birmingham Women's Hospital in Birmingham, England. More news now on single embryo transfer. We've heard here in Lyon that it should be recommended to most patients who receive oocyte donations. That's according to the conclusions of a retrospective study using donors who were either known or anonymous. Vivica Söderström Antilla from Helsinki reported on overall pregnancy rates of 43%. And she told me that single embryo transfer was recommended whenever a good quality embryo was available. What we found for example, was that the outcome, the, the pregnancy rate was similar independent of what the number of treatment was. It was similar in all different ages of recipients and it was uh, similar in different groups of recipients. If you take recipients with ovarian failure or recipients with functioning ovaries and with previous failures in earlier treatments, they had all similar outcome and we also found similar outcome outcome when we compared anonymous and non-anonymous donation and we furthermore found that we had really similar outcome after single embryo transfer and double embryo transfer but that was because we had chosen those women in which we thought had a good chance to to get pregnancy so it was of course no randomized study but we found these similar pregnancy rates. And what we found was if we still try to avoid twins, and even if there was patients with not so good quality embryos, and we had transferred two embryos, still they have a very high rate of twins. So what is really coming out of this then? What does it all mean? What should we make of this? I think the most important thing to notice is that if we have a good quality embryo to transfer and we have an oocyte recipient, then independent of what the age is of the recipient, she might be 45 years old and she has several failures in her own treatments, 
to such a patient, we should transfer one embryo at a time if she has a good quality embryo available for transfer. And that is, I think, the most important thing. And the second thing is that if you have a patient, for example, Turner syndrome women with a medical contraindication for multiple pregnancies, then you should always transfer one embryo at a time. And what about outcomes for the poorer quality embryos then? And also, how have you defined a poorer quality embryo? A poor quality embryo is not in all others than those that are in four to five cells cleavage stage on day two and with fragmentation more than 20%. And if we transfer on day two such an embryo, then the outcome with this compared to a good quality embryo is about half of that what it is with a good quality embryo. But you still feel in some cases it is worthwhile still going through, even if it is a poor quality embryo? The design was actually if if all uh, embryos are poor quality, then we recommend double embryo transfer if the patient Uh, the recipient has no contraindication for a twin pregnancy. So uh, that is something that must be, I think, discussed with the couple. Of course, it's also uh, important to really care for, inform them of all risks. They they cannot know what is the risk of a twin pregnancy. They think it is, uh, that is nice, then I get two babies. <laughs> immediately and so on but but if there are risks uh, high risk during pregnancy high risk of prematurity and so on you you have to inform them of, of, of all these risks and then go further with the decision that you have done and sometimes yes sometimes if the quality was not so good then we decided to transfer two at a time and that is what our policy now has been That was Vivica Söderstrom-Antilla from Weistolito Fertility Clinic in Helsinki, Finland. I'm Sarah Maxwell and that's all from this episode of the Audio Journal of Medicine from Audio Medica News. We've been reporting from the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology annual meeting being held here right by the banks of the beautiful River Rhone in Lyon.